0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. Today, this will give me an excuse to dodge some of the uh, more questionable areas of this passage. Um, Let's start off by reading in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Um, This is where we've settled in. trying to understand the man of lawlessness, the coming apostasy, what those things mean. Let's look at 1 through 12 again. We'll review a little bit from what we talked about last week, catch everybody up, and then we'll hit on the remaining portion of this passage. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in, the, in his time? for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the lord jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing faults in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now we started off last week talking there's some difficulty in understanding this passage, mainly the fact that we don't have Paul's oral teaching on this passage. If you look back in verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Paul is reviewing, verses 1 through 12 is a review of a longer teaching discussion with these people. When he was there planting the church, he taught them about the Antichrist. He taught them about Jesus coming back. And now he's simply reviewing it, recapping it. I'm going to review for you guys what we talked about last week, but we're not going to talk about everything we talked about last week. So for those of you that weren't here last week, you had the disadvantage of hearing bits and pieces of last week. We're hearing bits and pieces of his teaching on the end times because we don't have his oral teaching. So he's not going to go into detail about who the restrainer is for the Antichrist, He's assuming that they already know. He says, we already talked about this when I was there. I don't need to go into it again. So we're at a disadvantage because we don't have his oral teaching. Therefore, we've got to be on guard as we proceed. We have to be careful as we proceed in this passage that we don't make too many definitive statements because some of this is speculative because we don't have his teaching on this. What is clear is that we must be on guard against a current and a coming deception Now, again, we can disagree about rapture versus no rapture. I've told you I don't believe that there is a rapture of the church, seven years of tribulation, and then Jesus comes back. I believe Jesus is coming back one more time, and he's putting an end to everything. We can disagree about that. You can be a member here. It's not a requirement for membership for you to believe my eschatology. What we can agree on, even if we disagree about that, is that there is current deception and coming deception and at at, at least we need to be concerned about the current deception john tells us in first john you hear that the antichrist is coming even now antichrist have come to deceive so wherever you stand on end time understanding we can agree on the fact that there are antichrists alive now that are seeking to deceive and most likely there is one coming in the future that will bring full deception Whether we're here or not, we can disagree about. But what we can agree on is that we need to be on guard against deception. And I would say specifically, we talked about this some last week, deception within the church. That most likely the Antichrist is coming out of the church. Because when we talk about apostasy, we're talking about falling away from the faith. Which implies you have to have originally been in the faith, or at least appearing like you're in the faith. So sometimes there's speculation about, Crazy world leaders, oh, they might be the Antichrist. I think Antichrist people are more like Muhammad, Joseph Smith, guys who have come out and started separate religions that teach false things about Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses. They've come out of the church. They originally had founders who were a part of a Bible-believing church that left the church, started their own theology, started their own doctrine, and they are deceiving people. I was up at McDonald's Saturday, yesterday, studying, and there were Jehovah's Witnesses all around me, meeting up before they would go out and evangelize Senoi with a false gospel. There were three that were sitting right there in McDonald's talking with their their Jehovah's Witness Bibles and literature open. Two of them already converts trying to convert another one. There's deception around us. There's antichrists around us. They come from the church. They leave the church. John says they were part of us. They show that they weren't really us because they left us. And now they're deceiving people. And it may be that one greater than what we even see now in deception is coming to lead a massive deception, a massive deception that, in a sense, will clean out the church because anybody that's in the church that's not a true believer will fall to this deception, okay? We'll look at that some more today when we look at the apostasy or the rebellion. We said last week that Jesus has willingly delayed his second coming so that certain events can happen. So sometimes people ask the question, can Jesus come at any time? Yes, but I believe he chooses not to. Because Paul says, you know he will not come until the apostasy or the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So can Jesus come at any time? Yes. He has the ability to come whenever he wants to. But I believe he chooses not to come at any time. I believe he chooses to wait until certain things have happened. We also mentioned last week that the it'll all work out philosophy was foreign to Paul. That some people in the church say, eh, that eschatology stuff is a little too deep for me. I'm just going to trust that it's all going to work out the way God wants it to. That concept was foreign to Paul. It was foreign to Paul because he's teaching new believers about the Antichrist. I mean, you don't find that. If you go buy a new believer discipleship material at a Christian bookstore, I guarantee you the Antichrist is not in there. It's just not. I've looked at it. New believer discipleship is going to teach you how to pray, how to read your Bible, go to church, be baptized. Antichrist. It's not there. You know, it's just not there. But Paul, I mean, from, from we said he's maybe in Thessalonica six months. Six months max. And he says, don't you remember we talked about the Antichrist when I was there? I don't think they brought it up. They weren't like, Paul, tell us about the Antichrist. They didn't have the left-behind movies to watch and get confused about. Paul said, you need to know about the Antichrist. You're not asking about it, but you should be because you need to know about this guy. He's coming. Paul didn't take a it'll all work out approach. He said, my new believers, my disciples, they need to know about the Antichrist. They need to know about the future. I told you last week we need to be prepared for the Antichrist because I think there's a... Well, I think we will be here, but uh, for you, there's definitely a good possibility that we're going to be here. Um, Passage describes when we will be gathered to him. In verse 1, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together to him. I mean, that's that's descriptive of what he talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul says, now let's talk about when we're going to be gathered to Jesus. When is the church going to be gathered to Jesus? And then he goes on to explain that he's not coming until... The rebellion until the man of lawlessness is revealed. And then I told you last week too, it's encouraging that this evil is not something that we're supposed to try to prevent. We don't need to start movements where we try to prevent the Antichrist from coming to power. It's all part of God's plan. God's designed it this way. He's designed to devastate evil on that day. He's set it up for this. He's planned for this to come. So that he, Jesus can ride in on his white horse and devastate evil. We said some reasons that Paul writes to show God's sovereign control over evil. It's not a counter plan where God barely wins. I told you this is not describing a 15 round boxing match where Jesus comes through at the very end and beats up Satan. It's not a ninth inning rally where Jesus has to rally at the very end to win the game. It's a complete route. It's a complete devastation. It's not God's counter plan It's not that everything goes crazy and Jesus has to ride in to save the day at the last minute. God designed it this way. We said it's really the great trap. It's God's great trap. He makes Satan and evil think that they're mounting some type of strike against him. When ultimately, when ultimately it's God setting the trap to catch everybody, to bring his condemnation on those that are unbelievers, to devastate evil. We highlighted the fact last week that the plan can't even start until God says so. Said that Satan wants to bring his antichrist on the scene, but he can't because God won't let him yet. So the greatest evil, wicked plan of all time can't even start until the sovereign rule of this universe says, okay, now you guys can do your thing. It's completely in God's control. We said the great antichrist will be destroyed with a breath that Jesus will show up and completely rout him. And then it's important for us to realize, too, the greatest deception deceives no one. Ultimately, not one true believer gets deceived by the Antichrist. It says that the deception is for those that are perishing. The only people that get deceived by the Antichrist are people that are on their way to hell already. Nobody switches from God's team to the Antichrist team. That's the plan. That's what Satan wants. Let's steal people back to us. It doesn't happen, though says this deception is for those that are perishing and that God actually sends the deception to the people that are perishing so that they believe the lie and the believers are protected. The plan accomplishes absolutely nothing. Nobody changes teams during this time. Nobody changes teams during this time. We said that Paul writes to re-anchor the church in truth. To provide encouragement, not a discourse on the Antichrist. Which means we're not going to get all our, answer, all our questions answered about the Antichrist. Last week, I divided up into a couple of different times. We've got the time of restraint, the time of rebellion, and the time of retribution. We looked last week at the time of restraint. We said Satan's plans are already active. They're already active. The, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. We've highlighted that already this morning. The Antichrist is coming, but there are already Antichrist here. There are false religions already here deceiving people with a false gospel. So that plan has already started, but not to its fullest extent. Number two, Satan's plans cannot climax the way he wants them to. Because there's a restrainer. Now, we looked at what the restrainer was last week. I told you some people believe it's the church. Some people believe it's the gospel. Some people believe it's government in general. Others believe the Holy Spirit. Others believe an angel. I told you my personal belief is that I tend to see it more as the Holy Spirit working through Michael, the archangel. I gave you some reasons for that last week. And I'll pull a Paul and say, remember the things I taught you last week. And if you don't, you can listen to the podcast about the restrainer because we don't have time to go into it again this morning. But ultimately, when the perfect time comes, God will remove the restrainer to complete his final purposes for creation, which brings us into the time of rebellion today. The time of rebellion. Back in our text. Let no one deceive you in any, any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. The time of rebellion. It's a time appointed by God. It's a time appointed By God, his activity, the Antichrist activity is restrained until God permits his rise to power. Now, I believe specifically he will restrain the Antichrist from deceiving until everybody that's supposed to be saved comes. Now, we can disagree on the whole concepts of election and predestination. But what we can't really disagree on is some clear things that Scripture has to say about these issues. In Revelation thirteen eight, All who dwell on the earth will worship it, talking about the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Our names don't get written down in the book of life when we get saved. I mean, this says that the... That the um, the names were there before the foundation of the world. Who gets deceived here? People whose names weren't, weren't written in the book. Everybody whose names written in the book gets saved. They get saved. In John six thirty seven, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out a little bit of tension there. We've got the statement, everybody that's supposed to get saved. Everybody that God, the father has determined to give to me for salvation will come to me. But lest we get too on the side of predestination, he says, and I'll never cast out somebody that comes to me. Meaning nobody ever comes down for salvation says, hey, I want to be baptized, I want to get saved, and we say, well, we're going to have to check that book that's been written before the foundation of the world and see if your name's here. Because if it's not, we're not allowed to add anybody. Jesus says, everybody that's supposed to come will come, and anybody that comes, I'll never cast out. So nobody gets turned away from the gospel, but everybody that God planned to come with the gospel comes. And I believe he will restrain Satan's activity until everybody comes. In 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This passage says that Jesus delays his coming. He delays bringing the end times into being. Because he's waiting for everybody to come to repentance. Everybody whose name's written in the book. So it's a time appointed by God. God will restrain the Antichrist until he determines it's okay for the Antichrist to come. I believe it's when everyone that was supposed to be saved is. There's a threat to our faith, though. The threat here is that we apostatize in favor of lawlessness. That's what's going on here. Leave the faith for lawlessness. Lawlessness apostatize walk away from the faith and follow the man of lawlessness we see a hint of this in second timothy three. three second timothy three but understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self lovers of money proud arrogant abusive disobedient to their parents ungrateful unholy heartless unappeasable slanderous without self-control Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, people who live in godlessness or lawlessness. The book of Hebrews is all about how we're not to drift. Don't drift in your faith. Don't walk away from the faith. And We'll talk more in a minute about how that's not technically possible. But God uses things like the book of Hebrews to keep true believers on track, anchored in, following Jesus. Now, I'm going to give this information to you up front. We're not going to go into it because it can be really confusing. It would be more appropriate in a school-type setting as opposed to a Sunday morning setting. There's a lot of debate about when this happens. The Antichrist, the apostasy, there's a lot of prophecy in Daniel that I'll be honest, I have not studied thoroughly enough to understand everything going on in there. There's a lot of people that believe what's happened, what the prophecies in Daniel have already been fulfilled, or the majority of it has already been fulfilled. But Daniel prophesies a lot about a coming Antichrist-type person who will desecrate God's temple, the abomination of desolation, which is typically understood to be um, the the slaughtering of a pig or, or some type of unholy... Uh, workings within the temple. Um, so I'm just going to give you some quick views on when people think this is going to happen, and then we're going to stay more focused on what we can know from this passage. A lot of people believe that this got fulfilled, that Daniel's prophecy got fulfilled in 169 B.C. In 169 B.C., a man, named, by, by, a name, a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Syrian king, came into the temple in Jerusalem set up an altar to Zeus and slaughtered a pig, ultimately desecrating the temple. Pigs were considered unclean animals. Um, so this was completely revolting to the Jewish people. Not only that, he sets up an altar to a false god. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes fulfills a lot of what Daniel talks about. Now, if you know anything about Bible prophecy, you know a lot of times there's fulfillment And then more fulfillment down the road. So how much has been fulfilled? How much still has to be fulfilled again? Because Paul doesn't go into it. Again, it's hard for us to fully understand. And we're not going to try to do that this morning. Um, Some people believe that it's been fulfilled with the destruction of the temple. Rome sacked Jerusalem in AD 70. Jesus references this in Matthew 24. He even references Daniel's prophecy. He says, remember, Daniel prophesied this. So a lot of people believe the fall of Jerusalem, the fall of the temple in 80-70, was a significant event that we don't typically understand fully why that's so significant. But it ultimately ended Judaism the way that we understand it in the Old Testament. No more temple, no more sacrifice. You can't do it the way the Old Testament designed it. A lot of people believe that that final fulfillment, it gets carried out there. Others would say it's a general movement that we see Antichrist pop up throughout all of history. And eventually there'll be a final one, but not necessarily one that fulfills Daniel's prophecies. Then others would say it's, it's a real future figure. That there is an Antichrist that's coming that will be very different from other Antichrists, which is where I more fall in line with. There's also the focus on... Is this time for the church or for Israel? Is this tribulation time? Is the Antichrist coming to wreak havoc on Israel or the church? We've already gone into a lengthy discussion about why I see Israel and the church as the same now. That it's not Israel and the church as separate peoples of God. That God has brought the church and brought them into Israel. And so they're now one people of God. So I don't see it being a time for just Israel because, and we're talking about minute. because it's a falling away, Jews can't fall away because they don't believe in Jesus. They don't even claim to believe in Jesus. And in the book of Hebrews, it really seems to say that everything has shifted from Old Testament imagery to New Testament um, reality, that Jesus in the church is the fulfillment of that. But That gives you a little bit of, hey, it can be confusing to understand when all this is going to happen, a lot of different views. Um, if you're more interested in looking into that, then maybe I can sit down and help you with some direction for that. Um, it's a time appointed by God. So when it happens, whenever it happens, it's a time that God has appointed. Number two, it's a man empowered by Satan, a man empowered by Satan. Now we've already said that his coming has already started. Matthew 24, Jesus references antichrist or false prophets that are coming to deceive. Second John seven gives us a little bit more detailed understanding of what an antichrist is says for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Jude seems to say that bad theology about Jesus is what clues you into an antichrist, which is why I'm okay with with saying that the Mormon movement, the Jehovah's witness movement is antichrist because they teach false things about Jesus. They deny his deity they deny who he is based on what God's word says about him. So it's Antichrist. Jude and John say those guys are here already, even though the Antichrist may not already be here. It's a man empowered by Satan. In your notes, A, he aligns with Satan. Our text tells us that his rise to power is motivated and empowered by Satan. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception. Now we could argue, was Joseph Smith under the control of Satan when he when he led people away into his religion? I don't know. I don't know that Satan has to be heavily involved in every false teacher. Some of them can just do it on their own. This passage says that Satan is behind this man. He's behind his work, he's behind his effort. He's the one empowering him to do these works, to do these wonders, to deceive people in this way. So Satan is heavily involved in this guy's activity, heavily involved in this guy's rise to power. Next in your notes, he aligns with Satan. He opposes God. He opposes God. A man will seek to attain the elusive position of that we've had from the beginning to be like God. This Antichrist will be the final one who will try to ascend to that lofty position that Satan sought in heaven when he said, I want to be like the most high and was kicked out of heaven. Adam and Eve want to be like the most high. Satan says, if you'll eat of this fruit, you'll be like God. So they attempt their ascent to this position and they fall well short and are kicked out of the garden. This man will be the last There have been plenty of others, Nebuchadnezzar, others in the Old Testament who said, I am God. I am like the Most High. Look at everything that I have accomplished, everything that I have done. This guy will be the culmination of all of that. when He will ascend to a position and claim to be what God is. And he will ultimately be kicked out as well. He's a man who will be highly effective in his deception. He will work powers and signs and wonders, much like our Savior Jesus Christ, In Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Satan always produces replicates. He never creates anything on his own. He always copies what God does and distorts it. Satan never comes up with anything on his own. He's not a creator. He can't create things. He can only take things that have been created and try to warp it, try to infuse it with evil. So he takes good gifts that God gives us and then perverts them. He takes music and perverts it. He takes a relationship between a man and a woman and perverts it. He doesn't create those things. He doesn't create sinful things. He takes good things and perverts it. Everything that is sinful is a perversion of God's good creation. Antichrist is simply a perversion of what Christ came to do. He comes to work signs and wonders, but they're false. They're deceptive. We've seen this before. Pharaoh. Pharaoh's people were able to do things. Pharaoh's wise men. You'll remember in the book of Exodus when Moses shows up and. He throws down his staff and it turns to a snake. These other guys come out and say, we can do that too. We can throw down ours and turn them into snakes. But Moses' sign is better because his eats their snakes, eats their staffs. Um, I think it's humorous when Moses goes out and turns water into blood and they say, hey, we can do that too. Big deal. Like, what you need to be doing is turning it back into water. Like, your people don't have water and all you're doing is making more blood. Like, turn it into water if you've got power. But again, all Satan can do is attempt to copy and pervert. He can't create good. So Pharaoh's wise men, these magicians, they can't turn the water back to, uh, they can't turn the blood back to water. All they can do is bring more frogs. They can't get rid of the frogs. He's a man who brings deception through the power of Satan. It's real power, it's satanic power, but it doesn't do what it needs to do. And then in Matthew 7, we know there are people that stand before God and talk about, didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we, didn't we do these things in your name? People that will claim to have done powerful things that Jesus will say, I never knew you. Whatever it was you were doing was not motivated by my power. You didn't do those things through me because you're not in relationship with me. So we know that it's possible for powerful things to be done without God's power being the one to do it. It's a man who will sit in God's temple And draw worship away from God. Now this poses a question. What is the temple here? Is this a man who will actually enter. The temple in Jerusalem. And put himself in a position of power. And claim deity in that temple. We know people like Antiochus Epiphanes. Did something similar. So if that's the case. It's been done in the past. I think here the. The phrase temple of God is being used in a figurative sense, though, for the church or for Jesus. The reason for that is that just about every other time this phrase is used in the New Testament, it's in reference to the church, that there's a new understanding of what the temple is, that it's the church. And I'm going to give you these. I I wanted to have time to look at these individually together, but we're not going to have that time this morning. If you want to jot some of these down, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17 1 Corinthians three sixteen through 17. 1 Corinthians 6, verse nineteen, Second 2 Corinthians six sixteen, Ephesians, 2 Corinthians six sixteen, Ephesians 2, 19 through 21. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 7. Revelation 3:12 Revelation 21:22 These are all referenced these are all where all places where the phrase temple of God or God's temple or the Lord's temple is used and it's not talking about the physical temple in Jerusalem. On top of that, Paul never uses this phrase in the New Testament when he writes. He never uses this phrase to talk about the real temple. It's always used figuratively. Jesus uses this phrase figuratively when he talks about his body. Remember when he tells them, if you destroy God's temple, I can rebuild it in three days. And they're like, how in the world can you rebuild the temple in three days? It takes years to build a temple. And it says that they didn't understand that he was talking about his body, his temple. So there's a reinterpretation, a re-understanding of what the temple is in the New Testament. So I believe that this is a, a figurative allusion to the church, that this man will ultimately come from the church may even within the church set up a position of authority where he begins to deceive within the church. Or it may simply just be an allusion to a position of power, that he's figuratively in the temple of God. He's assuming a position that only God should have. I don't think that it has to mean that the temple has to be rebuilt, that there has to be a return to sacrifices, and that he has to go in there and slaughter a pig. I think that portion has probably already been fulfilled. Now, I could be wrong about that. Um but I really believe it's more an allusion to either coming from the church or strictly just a reference to a position of authority that only God should have. It's God's temple, but he's claiming to have that type of power, that type of deity. So he aligns with Satan. He's opposed by God, or he opposes God. He's controlled by God. He's controlled by God. That's the comfort to us this morning That is, when an antichrist shows up, whether there is a new temple or not a new temple, whether he's killing pigs or not killing pigs. Whatever it is he's doing, he's ultimately controlled by God. He can't come until God tells him he can. Then he gets revealed when God wants him to be revealed. He can't even be effective in stealing anybody from God's people. Only people that are on their way to hell believe him. So ultimately nobody is deceived from God's children. And then he's destroyed by a breath. As Powerful as he comes across in Scripture, he has absolutely no power in comparison to God. He's completely submitted to what Jesus wants him to do. He aligns with Satan. He's opposed by God. or He opposes God. He's controlled by God. Number three, a following deceived by choice. A following deceived by choice. There's a following of people that will follow the Antichrist. They're deceived by him by their own choice, though. It's a following, a following towards him that's deceived. These people are deceived, but they're deceived by their own choice. Rebellion is what the word is in the ESV. It's the word apostasia. It means an abandonment of a formerly professed position. A rebellion against the faith. Every Old Testament or New Testament use of this word is in reference to a religious crisis. Every time this word is used, it's about people leaving the Christian faith. In Acts 21.21, 21, the word is used for people that are potentially going to abandon what the Old Testament has to say. They're going to fall away or they're going to abandon it. In 1 Timothy 4, 1-2, through Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Hebrews 3, 7 through 14. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test. So he alludes to Old Testament Israel rejecting God. You Skip down to verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an un- evil, unbelieving heart, lending you to fall away from the living God. Every time it's used in the Old Testament, New Testament, it's in, it's in use for somebody who is potentially going to lead the Christian faith. Now, I told you that a lot of rapture people believe that this is in reference to people departing from this earth to go be with Jesus. So rebellion would be a bad translation for them. They would want it translated as depart. So before the second coming, the departure has to happen first and then the Antichrist. That's how people that believe in the rapture would read this passage. But every time this word is used, it's used in a negative sense of somebody leaving the faith, which means this is not the word that Paul would use to describe people departing to be with Jesus. If he did, then he's going against everything else that he has said and that other biblical writers have said to use this word in a positive way. Okay, so it's always used... In a negative way. The invisible church is different from the visible church. So if we're talking about a rebellion. We're talking about a falling away. This is not people who lose their salvation. This is people who were in the church. Claiming to be Christians. But aren't really Christians. Remember in the the, sower and the seed. Seed falls on the rocky ground. When things get tough, they fall away is what it says. So when this tribulation comes, when this deception comes, those that aren't truly Christians will fall away. I think it's an allusion to the, the parable that Jesus tells about the wheat and the tares. Remember, he says that the farmer goes out and plants the wheat, and then his, his hands come in and say, hey, uh, somebody came in the middle of the night and started sowing like weeds in this stuff, and now, now both are going to grow. And he says, well, we can't can't do anything about it right now because if we go in there and start ripping up the weeds, it's going to mess up the the wheat too. Let's let it grow to maturity and then we'll separate it during the harvest time. What we have here is people within the church, the visible church, what we see on Sunday mornings. It's made up of Christians and non-Christians. Even as, as much as we might try for membership to be only for believers, unbelievers still get in. There's coming a day when the church will be cleansed. Unbelievers will be deceived. They will leave the church. They will fall away. There will be a rebellion. This antichrist will deceive a lot in the church. Not true believers. People within the church, though, that professed salvation that were never really believers will leave. They will fall away. They will abandon the faith. Who will be deceived? We'll run through this real quick. Who will be deceived? Those who do not truly believe is what our verse tells us. Back in 2 Thessalonians 2. All wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. It's people that don't truly believe. Luke 8.13. The ones on the rock are those who, when they heard the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while. And in time of testing, they fall away. They abandon the faith. It's people who, have all, who are already perishing. He says the deception is for those that are perishing. You'll remember in John 3, 18, Jesus tells Nicodemus, for those that don't believe, they are condemned already. They're condemned already because they've chosen not to believe in Jesus. So they are on the path of condemnation. They are perishing, and they will be deceived even further in their deception when the Antichrist shows. It's those who have refused truth. They've refused the truth. It says they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. It's people like Romans 1.18 describes. People who have a knowledge of God but reject that knowledge. They worship creation rather than the creator. It's people who have truth that say, no thank you. I don't want the truth. I want to believe what I want to believe. I want to do what I want to do. We talked about this in chapter 1 when we talked about the division of who gets relief and who gets the punishment. It's people that don't love truth. People that don't love God. It's those who approve or choose sin. It says they had pleasure in unrighteousness. Romans one thirty two describes the same type of people. It says even though they know that God's wrath is coming upon this stuff, they approve people that do it. They love sin. They love rebellion. These are the people that will be deceived when the Antichrist comes. The unbelieving world is led into further deception by the works of the Antichrist. They believe he is the divine come to earth. It's not inconsistent with other parts of Scripture because God uses evil agents to bring further deception to those who freely chosen sin. Now, this is sometimes hard for me to reconcile. But there are passages that talk about God leading people into deception, in a sense. Where God allows that deception to happen, where he hardens Pharaoh's heart. But it's after Pharaoh has already hardened his heart. Romans 1 says God gives them over to their desires because they've already chosen those desires. There's scenes where God says, I need an evil, I need a lying spirit to go deceive this king. Who wants to do it? A lying spirit says, hey, I like to do that kind of thing. I'll go. God says, all right, you go. Go lie to him. God allows people that choose sin to be led into further sin. He uses evil agents. He uses Satan. He uses demons to lead people into further sin when they've chosen sin. It's a warning to us to not think that we can put off salvation to the end. Jesus warns against blaspheming the Holy Spirit where you reject to the point that God gives you over to it and you don't ever come back from it. He lets you fall into further and further deception. If you want some of these passages, I can give them to you. We don't have time to look at them. And I certainly don't have time to explain them all. The implication, though, is that the great deception is brought on by the great refusal. The great deception is brought on by the great refusal. These people are deceived by the Antichrist because they've already refused the gospel. These aren't people crying out saying, I want to be saved I want somebody to tell me the gospel, but all I see is the Antichrist, so I guess I'll go with him. These are people that have refused the gospel. They've rejected Jesus, and they're now deceived even further by the Antichrist. Who won't be deceived? People that won't be deceived are those who are being saved. People that are not perishing. 1 Corinthians 1, 4-9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him and all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. I love these passages that talk about us making it to the end. It always attributes us persevering because Jesus does it. It's Jesus who sustains us here in 1 Corinthians. In Philippians one six, he who starts the good work in you will finish the good work in you. He doesn't stop working on people that he starts working on. He doesn't walk away from people and say, Oh, you're going with the Antichrist, I'm done with you. If he starts work of salvation, he finishes the work of salvation. John ten, twenty-eight through twenty nine. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand, including the Antichrist. The Antichrist doesn't get to come on the scene and start taking people out of God's hand with his deception. He only deceives people that are already deceived. He only deceives people that are already perishing. Jude 24 through 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Jesus is the one who keeps us from stumbling. He's the one that keeps us from falling away. So if you're like me and you believe that we will be here for the Antichrist, we won't fall away because of the Antichrist, because Jesus will keep us from stumbling if we're truly Christians. 1 Thessalonians 5. We looked at this passage when we were in that, in that book. says that he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. If he called you to salvation. He'll surely bring you to the end. He'll make you holy and blameless. But that doesn't discount the fact that we have to avoid deception. I told you that books like Hebrews are given to us. So that we don't fall away. Matthew 24. Verse four, Hebrews three, second Peter three, all three of those passages say, don't be deceived. Gather with other believers so you don't get deceived, so you don't become hardened in your sin and fall away. So is it possible for a Christian to fall away? No. But a way that a Christian doesn't fall away is they yield to these warnings. They gather with other believers and they stay faithful to the end. It's not possible for a Christian to fall away. And part of the reason it's not possible is because God warns us not to. And a true believer responds to that. The Holy Spirit keeps us faithful. How to avoid deception is C. God grants the church discipline and elders to guard our hearts. I believe this is why church discipline and elders are so important in a local church. It guards us from tolerating sin. We don't let sin stay here. Habitual, unconfessed sin will be removed from this church body so that nobody else gets deceived by it. And elders are put in place to protect this flock from false teaching so when the Antichrist or other Antichrists show up, we don't get led astray by them. Elders protect the flock. In the time of retribution, the end time judgment flows with the justice of God. The greatest leader of evil is routed by the return of Jesus revelations chapter 1 16, 2, 16 and nineteen fifteen talk about the the authority and the power that proceeds from jesus's mouth that he comes with a sword that slays a sword of a of, of fire a breath that stops this evil the unbelieving following will be condemned as well so this great rebellion this great assault what i believe revelation 20 describes at the very end this this marching towards God and his people by all evil is completely stopped by the return of Jesus. He comes riding in and, and routs the greatest wicked plan of all time with the greatest ease puts it to an end. The application for us. I told you last week we need to faithfully gather together so that we're there to participate on the great gathering. I told you that the word for gathering at the beginning of 2 Thessalonians 2, where it says concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together to him, it's the same word that Hebrews uses when he says we need to be faithful to gather with other believers regularly. So we need to be faithful to gather now so that we hold fast so when Jesus comes back, we'll be there to be gathered to him. We also need to be faithful to share the gospel with people now. There are people that are perishing that can still be saved right now. But I told you, even though Scripture doesn't say this, it's very possible that when the Antichrist comes, nobody else is getting saved. That the restrainer is removed, full deception comes, and if we're here, nobody else is getting saved during that time, potentially. Potentially. We need to be faithful now, while the restrainer is still in place, to call people to salvation. I think we can be encouraged. Our salvation is proven to be true as we resist the deceitfulness of Satan through Antichrist. We talked about this in chapter one. God loves to prove our faith. He loves to show Satan and others that we are faithful people. He did it with Job. He does it with others. I love to bring you through difficult times because it shows Jesus to be amazing when we stay faithful to him even when everything's falling down around us. Imagine the great stage if we're here during that time, for our faith to be proven during the greatest deception of all time. We don't have to cower in fear that, oh, I don't want to be here for that. I don't want to be here when the Antichrist is here. I hope, I hope I die before that. Or if I believe in a rapture, I hope that happens before that. No, like, we don't have to cower from that. Like If we're here, we will be on the greatest stage of deception for our faith to be proven true. When we resist the greatest evil mount against God's people ever. And we're shown to be true believers on that day when Jesus gathers us. So we can be encouraged if we're here. Knowing that God will sustain us to the end. But we have to be faithful now to prepare ourselves to not be deceived. We do that by knowing God's word. fellowshipping with other believers. And drawing people to salvation. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the truth of your word contained here in Second Thessalonians. I thank you that you have given us a glimpse of what the future looks like. We recognize that you haven't told us everything and that's okay. You've told us what we need to know. So exactly how this plays out, we don't know, Father. We confess that. I confess, God, that a lot of it confuses me. But God, I'm thankful that we can draw upon the things that are very clear. That Satan wants to wreck your plan. And what he fails to realize is that his attempts are exactly part of your plan. To put your greatness on display for all creation. God, I'm thankful that you've called us to be a part of that story. That we get to participate as your children. As we get to show this world. Your glory. Your honor as you draw us to you and keep us faithful to you through everything that we encounter. God, I pray that you would encourage our people this week. God, help us to remain faithful to you. Help us to do our part in persevering. Help us to be faithful to draw others during this time. You delay your return because you don't desire for any to perish, but all to repent. God, help us to see every day as a delay on your part so that others can repent. God, help us to draw them to that. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.